Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Before we dive into our study of another church in Revelation chapter 2, I just wanted to make a couple comments for context. This study is an informal Bible study, and we're actually talking around a meal or right after a meal, so there's a lot of background noise, and I have to admit that the meal probably slows me up a little bit uh, with a full belly trying to communicate, so it's a little bit different than a preaching format or an interview format, but I hope you enjoy the content anyway. So uh, with that said, just if you hear this kind of noise and background and and so forth, uh, that's what's going on. Thanks for your patience, and I hope you enjoy it. So today we're going to look at the second church in the seven letters to the church in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, the church in Smyrna, which is a persecuted church, a suffering church, and I think we can learn some things from it. We're reminded that the book of Revelation starts with the vision of Jesus Christ, and then there's the seven letters in chapters 2 and 3, and then there's the things in the future, starting in chapter 4. And the seven letters are written to seven real churches in Asia Minor, and they're addressed to the messenger. Some people think it's the angel. Some people think it's the pastor of the church or an elder in the church. I, I don't pound the pulpit for any one or the other. It doesn't change the message of each of the letters. Each of the letters follows a certain pattern usually. There's uh, an introduction, usually a commendation, sometimes a rebuke, and then there's some counsel given and then a promise made to the overcomer in each church. My belief is that the overcomer is a Christian who has been faithful in their trials in the church. So it's not just all Christians that he's addressing when he addresses overcomer. So with that, then our first church we started in chapter 2 was the church at Ephesus, which had lost their first love. And now we're looking at a church that is going through persecution and promised to go through more persecution. And we'll see what his message, Jesus' message is to them through the church in Smyrna, beginning in verse 8. It's interesting to note that the word Smyrna, the city, comes from the word myrrh, which was a uh, perfume kind of a fragrant gum used to embalm people in those days. It was uh, very bitter to the taste, but very sweet to the smell. So we could say it's bitter sweet. And that kind of reflects the church at Smyrna. The bitterness is in their sufferings and their persecution. And the sweetness is their response to it, and their good works in the midst of all that. So maybe a coincidence that Smyrna means that had come from that word, but probably nothing is a coincidence in the Bible, right? So the introduction starts out to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Well, we remember that each of the letters to the church churches have something that uh, recapitulates or goes back to the chapter one and the description of Jesus there. And this goes back to when he calls himself the first and the last it goes back to verse 11 where he calls himself the first and the last and the alpha and the omega and then also in verse 18 
it echoes verse 18 says I am he who lives and was dead and behold alive forevermore so both of those things from chapter 1 are echoed here at the beginning of the church to remind them who Jesus is I think the fact that he's the first and the last uh, indicates that he knows all things he's the God, he's the God of history and uh, he's got over history and that he raised from the dead is a good reminder and encouragement to them that they, in the end, will be victors no matter what they're persecuted for or suffering today. Some people have um, commented or postulated that he mentions being dead and alive again as a comparison to the Greek goddess Sybil who would supposedly die and then come back to life in the springtime. And so she was worshipped as a goddess who died and came to life. And Jesus might be kind of mentioning his own death and resurrection as an affront to or uh, as a contra truth to this civil goddess and her worship. So after the introduction, this church is commended in verse 9. Jesus says, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, that you are rich, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus knows all things, so he easily is able to say, I know. And um, one thing we want to note, though, if, if there was a, a complaint or a rebuke, we don't see it in this letter. We see this commendation. This is uh, one church that doesn't receive a rebuke at all. No complaint from Jesus. And he knows the works that they're doing in spite of the fact that they're suffering under persecution and he says he knows their their works and their tribulation and poverty Ten, it tends to be that those who are persecuted for their faith suffer in poverty one way or the other inevitably uh, in this case for example Christians in the town of Smyrna could have been blacklisted by the guilds by the unions cut off from work or income or they could have been just robbed and abused and boycotted their businesses boycotted <clears throat> I see this happen today in today's world in countries where Christians are a very small minority they're um, they cannot find work sometimes they're not given work uh, because of their faith as Christians and they get lower class jobs if they don't identify with the political party, they may not get a job at all. I know that's true in uh, one country <clears throat> where I minister. And uh, it, just to live in a certain place among other Christians can cause you persecution too. Uh, I'm thinking of Myanmar where most of the, a lot of the military action and the military coup was against those towns and cities that were considered high in Christian population, some of the places we went. So I see this going on, and it keeps the people in poverty because they can't work, they can't make an income, they can't transit, pick up things, deliver things. It's very difficult for them. They can't finish their education sometimes. So they, these Christians are in deep poverty. But yet he says, um, you are rich. So that tells us that poverty is not related to spirituality. Poverty is not related to spirituality. Contrary to what the prosperity gospel would have us believe, that if you're a Christian, that you should be prosperous, you should be driving a Mercedes-Benz and living in a mansion. That's what the prosperity gospel says. You should be healthy all the time, wealthy all the time. But here, these, these poor Christians are poor. 
when you're living in poverty. But Jesus says you're rich. And he commends them for their spirituality. So poverty is not linked to spirituality, not related to it. And how are they rich then? Well, I, I think he must be talking about their spiritual treasures, their eternal treasures that they have. Uh, Jesus said it's possible for every, anyone to lay up treasures in heaven. I think we do that by our good deeds and suffering under difficult circumstances like they're doing. So those who focus on worldly wealth are short-sighted. This church evidently was focused on their heavenly treasures instead of just their worldly wealth and their poverty and their circumstances. So he's able to call them rich. He mentions something here in uh, verse 9. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not. It looks like their poverty is linked somehow to being persecuted by those who call themselves Jews but they're not really Jews. Now Paul's idea of a Jew is he explains it in Romans 2, 28 through 29 that a real Jew is one who's not just born a Jew in the flesh but is circumcised in the heart. One who believes in Christ is Abraham's seed, spiritual seed, a true Jew. So a true Jew is one who's accepted Christ as Messiah, not just one who's born racially Jewish. So I think what he's referring to here is those who are born racially Jewish Jewish, but they're not true Jews because they haven't believed. And that's why he says uh, they say they are Jews, but they're not. And evidently, they're being charged with um, blasphemy or, um, or they're, they're being blasphemed against by those who say that they're Jews and aren't really Jews. Christians in the early church like this were accused of various things. They were accused, for example, of... Um, uh, of atheism because they didn't worship idols, the Greek idols. And they only worshiped one God. They were accused of crazy things like cannibalism because they took the Lord's Supper, they ate the body and the blood of Christ, and sometimes they did that in the catacombs under, underground, you know, where the dead people were buried, so they thought they were people, they thought the Christians were being secretive and eating human flesh down there. Um, they were accused of uh, treason because they didn't support Caesar as Lord. They said Jesus is Lord. And that was a big, big issue back then. So whoever these Jews are, we don't know exactly, but it seems they seem to be linked to their poverty and they were blaspheming them with false charges like that. And <clears throat> Jesus calls them um, their, the synagogue of Satan. Um, he's not referring to a Jewish synagogue, but a gathering of people who represented really Satan. So. I think what this teaches us is to look behind the scenes at the spiritual battle that's going on when it comes to things like persecution or trials or tribulations there is a spiritual battle that we're, we could trace back to Satan in some cases now we, we know that we can undergo hardships because we're being disciplined by God or he's teaching us obedience or he's teaching us about his grace or we're suffering the consequences of our own sin there's a number of things that can cause us to be persecuted but there's always the option uh, that Satan could be persecuting us through other people. Like we see in the book of Job where he caused Job to suffer it's behind the scenes. We get the behind the scenes view that the, uh, the author of Job gives us and Satan is there petitioning God, asking him if he can get a Job like that. So there are examples like that. And Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against these demonic and satanic powers. 
when Christians suffer around the world, it's hard to know, I think from a strictly human perspective, whether they're suffering from their own consequences of sin or because God is disciplining them, training them, or, or Satan is maybe behind it all in some way or behind some of it in some way. But we need to keep that option open that it could be caused by Satan, and that's what Jesus seems to be saying here. He gives them counsel in verse 10. Do not fear any of those things which are about to, which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful <coughs> unto death and I will give you the crown of life. <clears throat> kind of an extended counsel here in this one verse. But what Jesus is saying to them is don't fear the future. And he tells them what's coming to them in their future. They're going to suffer persecution. He says that they're, they're going to be tested. Don't fear any things which come upon you. The devil's about to throw you into temptation that you may be tested. Does that remind you of uh, what Jesus said to Peter in Luke 22, I think it is, where he said, Satan's going to test you and sift you as wheat. So God sometimes gives Satan permission to test us. And the testing is going to last for 10 days. Now, what's he talking about there? Usually in the book of Revelation, numbers are meant to be taken literally. Like seven years of tribulation, ten year, uh, thousand years of millennial kingdom, uh, down to the days. So ten days could be ten literal days of severe persecution that the church was going to go through. But if days refers to periods of time, or like ten, it could be ten years, some people think, and they trace back the persecution under this, the emperor Diocletian lasted for about 10 years from 304 to 313. Some people look at it as 10 general periods of persecution under all the Caesars together. I don't know how they delineate that, a little bit subjective there. But there was great persecution under the Roman emperors. We do know that. A lot of Christians were martyred in the period under Rome's rule until Constantine, Emperor Constantine, in AD 314, legitimized Christianity. He saw a vision in the sky, and he said that Christianity is now legal, and uh, that was both good and bad. Maybe the persecution stopped it by making it legal. I think a lot of it went corrupt and political. But um, that's what Constantine did with the Edict of Toleration in AD 314. So a lot of the persecution in, in great effect stopped then. <clears throat> but his advice to them when this 10 days, whatever that means, of persecution comes is to uh, be faithful unto death. So that's kind of an ominous picture of what they're facing. Severe persecution even unto death. And uh, that's exactly what the church went through. A lot of death in the persecutions that followed Christ in the first, second, third centuries. In AD 110, for example, Ignatius, who was a bishop of Antioch, was devoured by wild beasts in an arena under Emperor Trajan. And then Polycarp, who was the bishop of this city, Smyrna, he was martyred at the stake in, uh, I think, about 1, 
155, 156. And uh, he's famous because when he was burned at the stake, he said something that has been recorded and passed down through the centuries. He said, fourscore, when he was told that if you recanted, if you denied the Lord, we won't burn you, we won't kill you. And he said, fourscore, in six years I have served the Lord, and he never wronged me. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? And they burned him. And then Justin Martyr, another early church father, was killed, martyred just one year after that. So Christians were blamed for everything in those days, um, for, for idolatry, for cannibalism, for uh, natural disasters, even diseases. They, they tended to blame the Christians. Um, you know, when Nero, Nero started his persecution, I think in 64, AD 64, it was because part of Rome burned and, it, and he blamed it on the Christians burning the city. In truth, what most just many historians believe is that Nero burned the slums to get rid of them and then blamed it on the Christians. So he began then to persecute Christians severely and killed many of them. So some, some have estimated that in this period under the Romans, about five million Christians were martyred or killed. That's a lot. Um, they were killed by putting them in an arena with wild beasts, wild dogs, lions. Um, they were boiled in oil. They were used as torches. They were crucified. They were beheaded. All different kinds of things to take their lives. Whatever we're going through doesn't sound like anything compared to that, does it? But the consolation is, is if they're faithful unto death, they will receive the crown of life. I will give you the crown of life. There are five kinds of crowns mentioned in the Bible and the New Testament. And this may be significant because something that, because Smyrna, the city, was surrounded by mountains in the shape of a wreath, kind of. And the word here used is the word for a wreath crown, a wreath, not a diadem, which is a royal crown, but a wreath of leaves that was won in a contest, a Stephanos uh, crown. And because it's that kind of crown that forms this ring, and Smyrna was ringed by mountains, some people think Jesus is kind of alluding to that as a point of relationship for them. And, and so this, this is a reward then for their faithfulness to Christ in persecution. The crown of life does not refer to the gift of eternal life for several reasons. One, it's not used that way other places, like in James uh, 1.12 where he says, blessed is the man who suffers um, through trials, he will receive the crown of life. It's talking to Christians there. So it's not saying that the crown of life is getting saved or being justified or receiving salvation, the gift of life or whatever. It's something that is earned by Christians who are faithful in suffering. And I think what it refers to is a greater experience of life in this world and in the next world. Crown of life is a, what we might call a superlative experience of God's life in our present experience and in our future experience. So it's, it's a reward, something given to believers that they can just experience a greater abundance of life. And that's what Jesus said. I come, I come that you might have life and might have it abundantly, right? 
So just uh, the promise of an abundant life is for those who suffer persecution faithfully and don't deny Christ. And uh, then in verse 11, he says, um, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, those who are spiritually in tune and have a, their hearing shaped by, I think, the Holy Spirit. Their heart is listening. This is what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So the faithful Christian who overcomes their trials, their persecutions, and remains faithful is an overcomer. And he will not be hurt by the second death. Now, what does Jesus mean by that? Because you might think, well, anybody that's saved, like these believers in this church, anybody who's saved is not going to go through the second death. Right? So nobody experiences the second death who's a Christian. The second death is a judgment described in Revelation chapter 20 for all unbelievers. They will be raised up and then condemned to the lake of fire, thrown into the lake of fire. So when he says they will not be hurt by the second death, what does he mean? I think what it is is just a strong assurance reaffirming the fact that they're very secure in the Lord. Um, there's, first of all, there's a double negative. So it's like saying, in no way will you experience second death. No way. So in that sense, it's a strong assurance to them. But I think also Jesus is using a figure of speech here. And uh, don't get thrown by the term, but I learned the term from uh, Zane Hodges. <laughs> and it's a legitimate figure of speech. It's called latotes. A latotes is an understatement used to emphasize something. It's usually stated in the negative or an understatement used to really emphasize the positive. So if you say you'll no way be hurt by the second death, it's emphasizing the positive. It's saying you're absolutely secure forever. That's, that's a word you probably will never use in your vocabulary. But I use it in teaching because we do run into it again in chapter 3. Uh, this is what Zane wrote. And I'll just read his words because he explained it very well. He said, by Latotes, this promise he's talking about, intimates a superlative triumph over the second death. But since the second death is actual banishment from the presence and life of God, as described in Revelation 20, the Latotes also intimates a splendid experience of the divine life and presence. So what he's saying is that this is a, a strong assurance that they will in no way experience the second death in fact, the opposite, they will, since it's not the second death, it's actually experienced a greater experience of life, which um, goes along with this crown of life. So, it's a figure of speech here. He's not saying they could be thrown into this or hurt by the second death. He's saying they never will. <clears throat> now, this was written to the church at Smyrna. Uh, some believe that it could be to a historical period like those first few centuries where Christians were really persecuted. And even though it was written to them in the first century in that church at Smyrna, I think there's a message for us today, as I think all these letters to the churches have a message for us today. So what would be the message for us today? I don't know that any of us has been threatened to be burned at the stake or to be killed for the sake of Christ, although there are people in the world who actually are every day but I think the way that we learn from this is that first of all be prepared with a strong faith 
Um, we might not be experiencing persecution today, but personally, I think the day is coming. I think it's with the exception in the world and here in the United States. Um, persecution is mounting. And just to say, I believe that marriage is between a man and a woman, that's considered hate speech. And you can get arrested in Norway and maybe I think in Canada and other places. And it's coming here for people that say, well, I think a, a man is a man and a woman is a woman. A man can't be a woman. That's hate speech. So that kind of persecution is creeping in. And it, it doesn't take very long. If you see those, for example, this young lady who lost the swimming competition to this guy named Leah Thomas. And she's been vocal about it. She's been going to campuses and giving talks about it. And they're attacking her. The mobs are attacking her, punching her in the face. She has to get security to walk her out of, in and out of the campus. Um, I don't know if she's a Christian, but I'm just saying if, if we choose to speak the truth, we're going to be persecuted. And it's not going to get easier, in my opinion. So I think we need to be prepared with a strong faith. There are more martyrs today than ever I have read. Um, and somebody has estimated that since the time of Jesus Christ, there's been 70 million Christians martyred for their faith. That's a lot of people. According to uh, one study, uh, over the course of reading what I found on the internet, so you know it's true. <laughs> Bright, Breitbart. Um, over the course of the past year, he's talking about 2021, an astonishing... 5,898 Christians were killed for their faith. And then he's quoting actually a study called the Watch List. While 6,175 believers were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or prison, and 3,829 Christians were abducted. So you get not just death, but you get abductions, you get abuse, uh, imprisonment, false arrests, and things like that. Another study I read said in, that these are the worst countries in 2020, the latest data that they had. And the worst countries for following Christ to be a Christian, first of all, North Korea. If you just own a Bible, you can be killed. I've read testimonies of people there. Afghanistan's the second, Somalia, and then Libya, and then Pakistan. The worst countries to live in that are violent towards Christians is Pakistan, Nigeria, and Egypt. And the list goes on. I'm just reading the top winners. The worst for killing Christians is Nigeria. I don't know if you've been watching the news, but the Boko Haram and the Muslims in northern Nigeria are just killing people randomly. Pastors kidnapping, killing them, going into churches, bombing, shooting, and so forth. So the worst place, if you want to lose your life, is Nigeria, Central African Republic, Sri Lanka. And now that's not even talking about the churches that are destroyed or Christian businesses that are destroyed. That's about lives that are lost or persecuted. But you get places like China where they take a bulldozer and knock the churches down. They're doing that in Myanmar also. They're actually bombing churches, military bombing churches. Uh, Rwanda was named in Angola and Nigeria. All places of great danger and, and persecution for Christians. Some more data from uh, another place called For the Martyrs website. It's set up to 
make us informed about martyrs around the world. And this is in relation to the top 50 countries where it's the hardest to follow Christ in 2020. And they say that 260 million people in the top 50 countries where there's persecution, of those, uh, 260 million Christians in the world experience high levels of persecution for their choice to follow Christ. One in nine Christians worldwide experience high levels of persecution. 2,983 Christians were killed for their faith-related reasons in the, these top 50 countries. 3,711 Christians were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, and imprisoned in these top 50 countries. And then 9,488 churches of, or Christian buildings in these top 50 countries were attacked or destroyed. So you start to get the feeling that we in the United States are the exception to what's going on in the rest of the world. And I truly believe that's, that's the way it is. Because I do have some personal experience with some of these countries. So be prepared, have a strong faith, I think is what we can glean from this letter. And that's what he's telling them, that Jesus is alive, we have a strong faith in him, no matter what we go through, we come out as victors in the end. We receive a crown of life. We endure faithfully. Keep your faith strong. I sometimes wonder if we were to experience this kind of persecution, how many would actually endure it faithfully? Or would they deny the Lord? Or would they deny knowing you and me? I wonder how many of us around this table would be faithful to the Lord to claim Him or you and I as brother sister in Christ in an environment of intense persecution. I wonder how many people would fall away for their own safety. I think something else that we can learn from this church is don't fear the future. Have a strong faith. If you, if you have a strong faith, don't fear the future because faith is the opposite of fear. And um, the promises of the scripture is that God will always be with us and he'll be with us in persecution and he'll give us the grace that we need when we need it, Hebrews 4.16. Um, come boldly to the throne of grace that you can find grace to help in time of need. Uh, so when you need it, his grace will be there. You don't need the grace today, so you won't experience it today. But when you're under persecution, should it happen, then you will need it, then you can have it if you come to him for it. So. Don't fear the future. Nothing can hurt or destroy our spiritual blessings. And <clears throat> we have an assurance that we'll be preserved from that, um, ultimately from the second death, and uh, given right here as we explain. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus said, don't fear those who can hurt the body, but the soul. So don't fear those who can harm us physically, because um, I read a, heard an interesting quote this week. You are not a body that has a soul. You are a soul that has a body. Isn't that interesting? You're not a body that has a soul. You're a soul that has a body. So you are a soul. We happen to be encased in a body. Don't fear those who can hurt the casing or the, or the jar that we live in. Don't fear those who can hurt the body, but those who can hurt the soul to spiritual damage. And then Romans 8, of course, verse 35 and following to the end of the chapter says, Nothing can separate, no one can separate us from the love of God. And he talks about tribulation trials and, and even martyrdom 
in that passage in Romans, the end of Romans chapter 8, which we will not read. But he says, don't fear these things because nothing, no one can separate us from the love of God. Our future is secure in him and it always will be. An early church father named Cyprian said uh, when he was speaking about a martyr of the Roman persecution in about the year 8250, he said, quote, in persecutions, earth is shut up, but heaven is open. Antichrist is threatening, but Christ is protecting. Death is brought in, but immortality follows. The world is taken away from him who was slain, but paradise is set forth to him restored. The life of time is extinguished, but the life of eternity realized. He's contrasting our mortal experience with our immortal eternal experience. And then I, I think something else we see here is uh, the third thing we can take away is that Christ knows our suffering. He says, he, he says here, I know your works, your tribulation, and your poverty. Jesus, of course, knows everything, and he knows everything we're going through. And not only knowing it cognitively, but he knows it experientially. And that's what Hebrews is the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us in Hebrews chapter 2, where it talks about we have a sympathetic high priest who experienced temptations just like we, so he can sympathize with us. We won't go into Hebrews right now, but the whole point of that is that Jesus was a human high priest and he experienced temptation like we did. He knows what we're going through when we're suffering, and he predicted that suffering. He said, the world will hate you, John 16, 33. He said, those who want to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, um, First, 2 Timothy 3, 12. So it was to be expected by those who heard Jesus. And then the fourth thing I think we should do is re remember our reward. And that's where we read in the second part of verse 10 and verse 11 when he talks about the crown of life. No matter what we go through, we are promised a, a better experience of life either here or in the future. We are guaranteed a future with the fullness of life and an eternal weight of glory, as Paul said somewhere else in 2 Corinthians. So we, it's just not that we won't have a second death, but it's also that we will experience a great life here and in the future um, when we know Christ as Savior and when we're faithful to Him. The evangelist D.L. Moody said, He who is born once will die twice. He who is born twice will die only once. He who is born once will die twice. Physical death, lake of fire, second death. He who is born twice in the flesh and then born again in the spirit will only die once. Because Jesus said in John 11, even though you die, you'll still live. So death is more like going to sleep, waking up in the presence of the Lord. And that's what we have as a hope that we should always take with us. Um, we should remember that there's a reward for our faithfulness, just being in God's presence, but also a crown of life, a greater degree and experience of that life when we're in his presence. And being faithful to Christ in persecution is part of, I think, what Jesus taught was a part of discipleship when he said, take up your cross and follow me. In Matthew 16, when Jesus said that, he had just told them that he was going to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. And then he says, now, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. 
So having said what he's going to suffer, he then says, this is what it means to be my disciple. You do the same thing. You take up your cross. And I really think that he was saying to the disciples, be willing to die for me. Because that's what crucifixion and the cross meant to them. They saw people along the roadside. It wasn't just a punishment. It was, it was a death sentence. And so they were saying, Jesus was saying, you want to follow me? Bring your own bullet. Bring your own cyanide capsule. Bring your own cross. Be willing to suffer for me. Even die. And that's what discipleship is all about. When we follow Jesus, we take up his, also his sufferings and identify with him in, in those sufferings as well. So <clears throat> it's a part of discipleship to uh, suffer faithfully, to, I think, to expect it, to have a strong faith, to uh, know that Jesus is with us, look forward to our reward, to have a long view and not just a short view of this life. And um, that's a, a good, uh, good word that Jesus gave to the church in Smyrna, and uh, I think we can learn from that today. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.